Hello, if you just tuned in, I'm Angel Fall, and this is Victims to Victorious on the Black Talk Radio Network. Each and every week we take a look at the public health solutions for gun violence. And we have been broadcasting in a unique situation during a pandemic that many people are willing it to to be over, but in fact it isn't. Chicago is particularly um, interesting to us as epidemiologists because of the number of African-American males overrepresented in the gun violence deaths. So I'm going to begin with uh, reading an article called uh, Four Dead, 19 Hurt in Chicago Weekend Shooting. The weekend victims, and this is available from the Chicago Sun-Times, and I believe it was just published um, over the weekend. The weekend's victims included four people killed on the south and west side and a 17-year-old girl wounded in Inglewood. And if you have been following us since last year, when the pandemic lifts, um, I plan to do a couple of shows from Chicago um, that are more interactive. We're going to have an audience and video and um, give the Black Talk Radio Network some needed coverage or needed uh, new members in the Midwest. The latest fatal attack happened Sunday afternoon in North Austin on the west side. A male was in an alley about 4.30 p.m. in the 5500 block of West Cortland Street when someone in the vehicle pulled up and opened fire, Chicago police said. He was shot in the mouth and chest and pronounced dead on the scene. Early Sunday, a person was shot to death in Fifth City on the west side. The male was on foot at 4.27 a.m. I was only been on the air for about two minutes. The title of today's show is Chicago is Comorbid for Gun Violence and the Pandemic. And the title of the article is Four Dead, 19 Hurt in Chicago Weekend Shootings. Early Sunday, a person was shot to death on the fifth city on the west side. The male was shot on foot at 4.27 a.m. when someone approached, he was walking on foot, and someone approached him and shot him multiple times in the 3400 block of West Adams Street, according to police. He was taken to Mount Sinai Hospital, where he was pronounced dead. On Saturday afternoon, a man was killed and another one was injured in West Pullman on the far south side. There were an, there were an eastbound vehicle. It says there were. Uh, that's a typo. There was an eastbound vehicle about 2.55 p.m. on 121st Street when a light-colored vehicle pulled up next to them near Lafayette Avenue, police said. Someone inside the light-colored vehicle opened fire and struck one man, 25, in the thigh and abdomen and the other, 26, in the foot. Their vehicle crashed into a home in the 12,100 block of South State Street, police said. The 25-year-old, identified by the Cook County Medical Examiner as Bobby Berry, was taken to the University of Chicago Medical Center, where he was pronounced dead. The 26-year-old was taken to Roseland Community Hospital, where he was stabilized. The weekend's first shooting left a man dead Friday night in East Garfield Park on the west side. So these are some of the details. I am going to read them. We're going to come back to them. You know, it does get a little bit pedantic and morbid when all I'm doing is describing these young men whose lives were cut down short, but we are trying to understand how to interrupt this violence 
And that's why we're going to talk about the Cure Violence people who um, started out in Chicago and have had a really good success rate. And during the pandemic, they are also doing harm reduction in people who are exposed to the coronavirus. So I'm reading again from the Chicago Sun-Times article, Four Dead 19 Hurt in Chicago Weekend Shootings. Officers responded to a shot spotter alert about 10.43 p.m. Now, we've spoken about that before. I've actually met um, uh, a sales representative from one of the companies that, that does this kind of sound harm reduction, if you will. It records sound in a certain decibel, and it assumes the default is that it is a gunshot. It's also that type of t- technology is actually also available to people in their homes, my home has a glass breaker sensor, for instance. Uh, no one has broken any of my windows, but when I've dropped the glass or clanked the dishes very hard in the dishwasher, it has been set off. In the 600 block of North Spalding Avenue, uh, someone found a 21-year-old unresponsive with a gunshot wound to his neck, police said. He was pronounced dead at the scene. The medical officers identified, the medical examiner's office identified him as Robert Sims. In non-fatal incidents, a teenage girl was critically injured Saturday night in Inglewood on the south side. Now, the Chicago Sun-Times article that was published over the weekend is called for, called Four Dead, 19 Hurt in Chicago Weekend Shootings. And one of the things that we've been talking about on Victims to Victorious is the definition of morbidity and mortality. This article clearly shows four people died from their gunshot wounds, but 19 were injured. So nearly five times as many people were injured from the weapons. And that's something that people don't always take uh, take note of. Morbidity means sickness in public health. So people who survived these gunshot wounds, their injuries could vary from organ damage, brain damage, loss of, loss of a finger, loss of a limb, not to mention the emotional toll. So there is, there, there's a lot of uh, backdraft, if you will, there's a lot of collateral damage when it comes to uh, these shootings. What about when I first read about the car that ran into the house? The article doesn't report who was injured in the house. But gun violence has victims that were unintended. The 17-year-old was shot in the face and neck about 10.30 p.m., according to police. Two males dropped her off at a Holy, at Holy Cross, Cross Hospital, and she was transferred to Mount Sinai Hospital in critical condition. The weekend's most recent shooting happened Monday morning in West Garfield Park on the west side. A 21-year-old man was riding a bicycle at 4.55 a.m. in the 4400 block of West Jackson Boulevard when someone in a passing gray Nissan fired shots, hitting him in the hand and leg, police said. He was taken to Stronger Hospital in good condition. A gunshot victim was brought to a hospital Sunday morning in Ukrainian village. The 25-year-old man was dropped off at 5.07 a.m. at St. Mary's Elizabeth Medical Center, 2233 West Division Street, according to police. He was transferred to Stronger Hospital in critical condition with a gunshot wound to the abdomen. Police say the person who dropped him off, who claimed to be a relative, was uncooperative with investigators and would not provide information about the location or the circumstances of the shooting. And let's unpack that a little bit. Not wanting to be forthcoming. Why does this happen? Now, the um, outreach workers at Cure Violence 
they work with uh, community members on that. There's a natural fear. There's a fear of retaliation. Um, you may know something about the crime, and you might be secretly happy that the other person has been shot because you know he shot someone else. There's a there's a mistrust of the police. Uh, the African American community continues to have a contentious relationship with the police, even when there are African American police chiefs in place. And some people would argue that those are figureheads. They're very much like when we were all living on a plantation and we were enslaved, the person who did most of the whipping very often was another slave. So there are all these dynamics that go into not wanting to divulge the name, the name of the person who did the shooting. And I did mention maybe the person who did the shooting is a relative of yours. Maybe you have financial dependency on it. You feel sorry for the victim, but you're still looking out for yourself. So I'm going to return to the article a little bit, and we're going to pack this up. We're unpacking some things in the article, but we're going to tighten this up because the title of today's show is Chicago is Comorbid. And comorbid means you have two chronic illnesses, two conditions. Either one could escalate and cause death or, or mortal injury or um, being impaired for some reason. And then when you combine it with another one, there is a, an effect, more of a domino effect. So that's what we're talking about today. Uh, today's show is called Chicago is Comorbid. The 25-year-old man uh, that we talked about was dropped off at St. Mary's and Elizabeth's Medical Center. On Saturday night, a man was shot near a police station in Gresham on the south side. And if you are listening in the Chicago area and I have mispronounced the names of cities or hospitals, send me a comment on the Black Talk Radio Network. Look for the button that says V2V. That stands for Victim, Victims to Victorious. When I was on the radio in Connecticut, I often mispronounced things when I came from the Midwest. And now I'm broadcasting in the Midwest, and I know that there are different pronunciations. The 29-year-old was walking about 10.35 p.m., in the 7900 block of South Halsted Street when someone fired shots, striking him in the abdomen, police said. He ran to the 6th District Police Station, 7808 South Halsted Street, where officers called him an ambulance. From there, the man was taken to the University of Chicago Medical Center in fair condition. A woman was shot Saturday evening while driving through, through back of the yards on the south side. The 54-year-old was in a vehicle with family members about 8.40 p.m. when someone in a brown sedan fired shots as they drove through the 800 block of West Garfield Boulevard, police said. The woman was shot in the abdomen and driven by a relative to St. St. Bernard Hospital before being transferred to Stronger Hospital in serious condition. One thing I do notice about, about the Chicago Times article it's the number of different hospitals that are able to take trauma patients and then they transfer them out. But this is this is good to know um, because apparently the supply is meeting the, the demand. And in a previous show, we mentioned that certain city mayors have asked people to to stop shooting each other so that the emergency room can be used for people suffering from coronavirus. And so that that's a plea. That needs some work. It needs some work in the trenches. I, I appreciate the sentiment 
both the mayor of Chicago and the mayor of Baltimore have asked for that. But what are you doing in the background to solve the social historic disparities that help produce gun violence and the lack of being able to understand how to solve conflicts using interpersonal skills? These are certain things we've mentioned before, and it would be um, it would be well advised if some of these mayors were to change how they perceive gun violence and how active they could be and put solutions in that work. And that's why we're going to talk about the Cure Violence Program that started in Chicago. So um, going back to our, some of our gun victims, gunshot wound victims, I'm mostly reading about ones who survived, but in one weekend, the fact that 19 people would be shot it's warlike. It sounds like a warlike statistic. Sounds like um, Al Capone type. Uh, uh, Al Capone type weekend. That's a lot of people involved. And look how many of the people who are shot, uh, who survive, are not presumably involved in the conflict. Many of them, as we read the article, appear to be driving somewhere else, and someone pulls alongside them. Could be mistaken identity as well. So we talked about the woman who was shot driving through back of the yard, and a detail about that. A relative in the vehicle told officers the shooter was likely aiming at, at the woman's 23-year-old nephew who had been arguing with gang members in the area, police sources said. So that speaks to what I said about lack of interpersonal conflict. And gangs are only able to thrive in communities where, where men are without stable father figures. So the, there's a lot of research on that. The gangs begin to take the place of a family, and whoever jumps you in the gang uh, becomes uh, patriarchal to you, if, if you will, or avuncular. Less than an hour earlier, a man was shot in Brighton Park on the southwest side. The man, 23, was outside around 7.50 p.m. in the 4400 block of South Sacramento Avenue, when someone fired shots, striking him in the thigh, police said. The man took himself to Mount Sinai Hospital, where he was in good condition. I'd love for our listeners to leave a comment if you have been uh, seen for gunshot wounds and you survived gunshot wounds in Chicago, and how were you treated at these various hospitals, uh, University of Chicago Medical Center, Mount Sinai Hospital. Clearly they're involved in uh, the critical care patients at this point who are involved um, who have unfortunately been infected with the coronavirus. And over the weekend, the Illinois Department of Public Health is reporting there were 2,088 new cases of coronavirus. And we will go back and forth to the literature that describes the pandemic, the virus, gunshot wounds, gun deaths, so we can tie this all into the theme. Chicago is comorbid for gun violence and the pandemic. The man was 23. He was shot outside about 7.50 p.m. in the 4400 block of South Sacramento Avenue, and he was taken to Mount Sinai Hospital. Saturday afternoon, two women were grazed in Little Village on the southwest side. The the women, both 21, were outside around 3.25 p.m. in the 2300 block of South Drake Avenue when another female walked up and shot them, police said. That's a highly unusual event. Uh, those of you who have been following victims to Victorious know that most of the gunshot wound victims are male 
and most of the gunshot wound victims are, I said victims are male, and most of the shooters are male. And when it comes to self-inflicted gunshot wounds, that is also true. The difference here is the race disparity. White men are most likely to shoot themselves, and African-American males are most likely to shoot a friend, acquaintance, or a relative. Another man and a woman were shot shortly after in midnight in Golden Gate on the far south side. A 26-year-old man and 40-year-old woman who were sitting in a parked vehicle at 12, 11 a.m. when someone shot them in the 13,200 block of South Riverdale Avenue, police said. The woman was hit in the abdomen and taken to Christ Medical Center in Oaklong in critical condition. The man was hit in the elbow and refused medical treatment. So why do you think some of these, um, some of the victims refuse medical treatment? I did mention before that there can be a retaliatory base to, to the shooting. The person who's victimized might be deciding he knows who did it and he may be willing to go back with a gun and, and shoot that person. This is where the violence interrupters of cure violence become important. Um, another reason why some African-American males in this situation refuse treatment is that they have warrants. And so they don't expect that they will leave the hospital, but instead will be turned over to jail. Um, another reason why they may not do it is very simple. They just may not have medical insurance. So we're a little more than, uh, we're about 20 minutes into Victims to Victorious. My name is Angel Fall, and the short version of today's show is Chicago is Comorbid. So returning to the article, um, the man that refused medical treatment, that was one of the shootings. Again, these are shootings that caused morbidity or sickness, injury, and all of the victims described here as of the printing of this article survived. Late Friday night, another man was shot while driving in Park Manor on the south side. The 19-year-old was traveling about 10.47 p.m. in the first block of East 71st Street when someone in a passing silver-colored SUV opened fire according to police. He was struck in the leg and taken to the University of Chicago Medical Center in fair condition. Seven other people were wounded by gunfire across Chicago between 5 p.m. Friday and 5 a.m. Monday. And the article says four killed and 19 hurt in Chicago weekend shootings. You can find that on the Chicago Sun-Times Anytime you can't find an article that I mentioned, you are welcome to send me a direct message. I do take DM messages on Twitter. So let's talk about the background of this. Let's talk about the pandemic of this. All of this is going on where people are being hooked up to respirators. People are having their temperature taken. People are suffering with what we know are not flu-like symptoms. And so this is a type of epidemic. I've described an epidemic before. Normally there's a certain level of what's called endemic disease. And when those numbers spike and people get infected quickly and the illness travels very far around the world, that is a good definition of a pandemic. Um, Whether or not corona was truly endemic to the United States, I'm not clear about that. But we do know it was endemic to China, that people in China had been dealing with it and its varieties like SARS for quite some time. Public officials announced 2,088 new cases of coronavirus disease. And this is this came out 
on May 18th, and this is the Illinois Department of Public Health. So mostly um, what I'm trying to do now is tie up some of the numbers of the, uh, of the events, of the number of people who succumb to the disease. Um, Cook County, let list them by race. And, of course, if you've been following, I'm sorry, list them by gender. If you've been following the news, more men succumb to the coronavirus than women. Now, there is a phenomenon in public health where technically women are sicker, but women live longer. So what does that mean? Women have more contact with the medical system, primarily because of pregnancy. And women practice better self-care than men. So, I mean, an extreme example of who, who practices really good health care for men is any professional uh, sports player you know. They get to be seen by a medical professional every day. Okay? So even the doctors and the orthopedists and the trainers who see them, they themselves are not seen by a medical professional every day. However, men given to their own devices are not good about taking themselves to the doctor when they're sick. We just read about a man who was shot in the elbow and refused treatment. So two pandemics are going on. So my question for people who are in Chicago and people who are listening to this show, how can you solve one without the other? And what about the gun violence being endemic in Chicago? We've already discovered that interpersonal violence, especially domestic violence, has gone up everywhere in the world, so much so that the World Health Organization um, actually does address it for a pandemic and has things in place, like women who fit, who um, pick up their drugs, the pharmacy can have a password, and that means they need to leave their home immediately. So let's take a look at some of the disease numbers here um, that are in the article from the Illinois Department of Public Health. Public health officials announced 2,088 new cases of coronavirus. Uh, the co- coronavirus is in Clinton County, Cook County, DuPage County, Jasper County, Kane County, Lake County, LaSalle County, Madison County, St. Clair County, Will County, and Winnebago County. Currently, the Illinois Department of Public Health is reporting a total of 92,457 cases. 92,457 cases. That's a lot, obviously. And for those of us who have lived on the East Coast or live on the East Coast. You know, we were holding our breath to get through this only to find out that um, the epidemic was moving west and got centered in places where people already are suffering, already are marginalized. One of the reasons why African-American people are overrepresented in the pandemic in terms of death is for the same reasons that they're overrepresented in the gun violence. Now, we do have to correct for gender here. In other words, most of the gunshot wound victims in America are overwhelmingly male. But the societal problems that cause you to want to shoot somebody are the same societal problems that force you out in the street when you can't stay at home. They force you not to be able to do social distancing because there's there's a housing issue. A lot of people living in government housing uh, don't have the space allotments to conduct the social distancing. So these are some of the things I want to have you keep in mind as we take a look at some more of the details from the um, pandemic. Currently, um, the Illinois Department of Public Health is reporting a total of 92,457 cases. 
including 4,121 deaths in 100 counties in Illinois. The age of cases range from younger than one to older than 100 years. That is a really widespread. Within the past 24 years, laboratories have reported, I'm sorry, 24 hours, laboratories have reported 23,047 specimens for a total of 561,000. The statewide seven-day rolling positivity rate is 15%. So let me just interject here. Positive for the virus does not mean you have the disease. The good thing about being positive for the virus, and the mainstream media hasn't reported this accurately all the time, it means you now have some immunity to it. If you test positive but had no symptoms, your body has already created created antigens. And, in fact, that's what they're testing for. That means that you've been exposed. So if you have antigens in your body for the coronavirus, then you have a, a certain type of immunity. The Illinois Mantino, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, the Illinois Veterans Home, IVHM, is reporting the passing of a third resident with COVID-19 since the beginning of the pandemic. 63 individuals at the Illinois Mantino Veterans Home have contracted COVID-19, including three cases who have passed away. So one of the issues that we're looking at in this pandemic is what I just mentioned before. How, how is it that people can isolate themselves when they can't get out? And this leads to the whole issue about people who are incarcerated, which we're going to deal with um, in another episode. So in preparing for the show, I wanted to know, you know, since cure violence is all over the world, I wanted to know what it was like, how we could compare them to a place where we know young men take up arms and shoot. So I took a look at the statistics of um, violence in Lebanon versus violence in the United States. Violence in Lebanon versus violence in the United States. So Lebanon, the, it's a Middle Eastern country, is ranked 1.9, it's ranked 7th. The United States, of course, is ranked 1st. Now they took a look at some other things like opiate use. Opiate use is associated with young soldiers around the world. Some type of stimulant, including eating tobacco for toy, for toy soldiers. So a question would be for listeners is what, what role does drug, do drugs play, illicit drugs play, in these shootings that you hear about in Chicago that we described uh, in the Chicago, on the Chicago Times article? Lebanon, in terms of capital punishment, is ranked 28th. The United States is ranked first. I'm sorry, it says it's ranked, let me, let me say that again. Lebanon executed um, as many, almost as many people as the United States. Let me back that up. The um, murder rate in Lebanon is 0.57. The murder rate in the United States is 5. The rape rate in Lebanon is 0.5. The United States was ranked ninth. The the murder rate was I'm sorry the mur, the rape rate was 27.3 percent, 54 five more times than Lebanon. Guns per 100 people in Lebanon, 21 guns per 100 people in Lebanon. In the United States, there are 88.8 guns per 
per 100 people, and that is approximately four times as much as in Lebanon. Intentional homicide rate in Lebanon is 2.2%. The intentional homicide rate in the United States is 4.7%. So those are some interesting statistics. I wanted to look at that because Cure Violence, which actually started in Chicago, has gone out and spread around the world because gun violence is an epidemic just like the coronavirus is. And public health measures can be put in place wherever there is gun violence so that the numbers are reduced. So if you want to take a look, this is an interesting website. Uh, It's called, let me uh, tell you what it's called. It is called World Wide Web Nation Master And if you can't find it, send me a direct message on Air Angel. And what it does is it looks at every single nation that reports, and they look at gun violence rates, they look at violence statistics. So this becomes important because we're tying it back to our theme that Chicago is comorbid for the pandemic and gun violence. And for a while now, there are a group of people who are called Cure violence. And cure violence approaches violence with the understanding that violence is an epidemic process that can be stopped using the same health strategies um, to fight epidemics. This theory of change utilizes carefully selected and trained workers, trusted members of the community we serve, to interrupt the contagion using a standard epidemic control approach. So in Chicago, now if you go to Cure Violence, uh, you will see that they have a map of where they are, um, where they have organizations. So Chicago, excuse me, since the beginning of their inception, they had another name at first, it escapes me, but we can come back to it. So shooting and killings across seven communities. So there have been, by their estimation, 41 to 73% reductions in shootings and killings across seven communities. Now, the reason that that number is um, controversial is that from an epidemiological point of view and a statistical point of view, the number should be tighter. In other words, that's a very widespread, like, and it doesn't explain it here, but I would suspect that it shows that some communities have a 41% reduction and some communities have a 50% reduction like that. It's not presented as a real average or a median. Philadelphia is another place with cure violence. They've had a 30% reduction in shooting. New York has had a 63% reduction. Baltimore has a 56% reduction in shooting. Puerto Rico, Puerto Rico is um, owned by the United States, but it's not a state. Puerto Rico has a 50% reduction in killings. 18 cities with reductions in shootings and killings um, have participated in the Cure Violence Program. So Cure Violence is now all over the world. So there are different, um, different numbers for this grassroots organization that began in Chicago. They now have data from other countries. Since their programs have been implemented in Honduras, they've seen an 88% reduction in shootings. In Mexico, a 24% reduction in killings last year. 
In the United States in general, it's as high as 73%. Again, you need to show us how that is. In the United Kingdom, and there's not a lot of gun, gun ownership in the United Kingdom, but in the United Kingdom, they say they have a 38% reduction in violent incidents. Notice when they're gathering the data, they don't use the word guns or gunshots because uh, guns because um, it's very hard to own a gun in the United Kingdom or Great Britain, as people used to call it. Uh, there's a 95% reduction in group attacks since cure violence has been working in Chicago. In Syria, 40, it's the only thing they're reporting is how many people they have trained in Syria. And um, Sheriff Violence is located in Chicago, and they now have gone global because, just like the pandemic of corona, gun violence is a public health issue that's all over the world. So one of the things that the Cure Violence people do is that they use Violence interruption. They use community outreach people who can identify who is most likely to shoot someone. And they're very good at figuring out who is going to do a retaliatory um, retaliatory shooting. So we are talking about Chicago. Um, The title of today's show is Chicago is Comorbid. And in Chicago, there is a 31% reduction in killings when you use the cure violence model. There's a, 90, a 19% reduction in shootings. Remember, everyone who gets shot does not necessarily die. Now, other cities, New York, uh, they're reporting 14% reduction in attitude supporting violence. And then that falls over to or runs into a 20% lower rate of shooting. And they have counted that they've done 100 mediations involving 1,000 people. So one of the tenets of care violence is that people have normalized the culture of violence. When you think about, next time you go to the movie theater, when when we're all able to go to the movie theater, count how many posters near the popcorn in the bathroom and the hot dog, count how many posters have someone posing with a gun. Usually it is a handgun. And they make it look sexy and they make it look cool and you know, we were excited in the movie theater by the trailer showing um, the protagonist shooting the antagonist, presumably the bad guys, with a shiny black or shiny uh, steel gun. So all of this is there. And so what does it mean to have an attitude about violence? One of the things about that is that means that you normalize it. You're expecting it to happen. So if it has been happening to you or your family for several generations because of where you live and who you are, you um, are not expecting it not to happen, if you will, to use the double negative. So it's the same way many people would argue with the way the jailhouse culture has passed through to the black community. It becomes an expectation. Incarceration becomes an expectation of poverty. And so being shot becomes an expectation. But I'm advocating everyone who listens that we can use public health models and we can reduce gun violence in many ways. In areas like Chicago where African-American men are shooting each other, a huge percentage of those killings, of course, are retaliatory. Someone has shot their friend, acquaintance, or a relative. But what what are they shooting over? What is the beef over? If it's gangbanging, then the gangbangers have to be 
identified. If it's a series of interpersonal conflicts that have escalated, then there are skills that can be taught to people when someone uh, uh, steps on your $150 sneakers, do you really have to shoot them? No, there are other ways that you can advocate for yourself. So I just want to give a few more international statistics that Cure Violence has gathered since we have people listening from all over the world. In uh, Jamaica, 60 workers have trained in Kingston and Montego Bay. In New Orleans, they've seen a 47% reduction in shooting victims, an 85% reduction in retaliation and arguments, um, those kinds of shootings. And let's see, what other city can we take a look at? Um, Juarez, Mexico, reduction in perceived number of conflicts among participants. And Philadelphia, 30% reduction in shootings using the cure violence model. If you type in CVG, you should be able to see the cure violence website. Um, It will start with the one in Chicago, and it has a really interesting article on how, how they are using violence interrupters as outreach workers during the pandemic. So uh, using them as outreach workers is a very good idea because the same people who they have to use, have to deal with so that they can um so that they can reduce the numbers of shootings in their area, that's the same neighborhood where people are being overwhelmed for uh, overwhelmed with the coronavirus. And also the outreach workers and the violence interrupters, they already have rapport with people. So when they have gone, you know, they give um, community meetings, for instance. So when they've gone to meetings and met people, and people know them as outreach workers, when they urge people to wear a mask, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't have the same intrusive feel. And there's really good social, um, there's social sociology research that shows that when outreach workers look like they're um, the people they give the services to, and if they're from that same set of facts or that same neighborhood, <coughs> excuse me, they have a way better uh, they have way better outcome data. In other words, I'm sorry, my throat's a little dry. In other words, the people who they give outreach to give them more credibility because they're from the neighborhood and look like them. And this is very important with, or look as they do, this is very important with black and brown people. So Cure Violence, I'm on the website, is guided by clear understandings that violence is a health issue, that individuals and communities can change for the better, that community partners and strategic partnerships are keys to success, and that rigorous scientific professional ways of working are essential for effectiveness. The Cure Violence mission is to reduce violence globally using control and behavior change methods. And so when they start out um, in Chicago, they're primarily looking at certain neighborhoods and how the shootings can be reduced. But their mission has turned global. And the founder of Cure Violence is Gary Slutkin. And he said for all along, violence is a health, it's a health issue. And there's a statement here that I totally agree with, and it's one of the things that we do here on Victims to Victorious. 
Violence is contagious like an epidemic disease. Exposure to violence has been scientifically known to increase a person's risk of adopting violent behaviors themselves, meaning that violent behavior transmits and spreads based on exposure just like an epidemic disease. And we are in the throes of the first pandemic that um, most of us have ever most of us have ever um, experienced. So if you want to contact Cure Violence Chicago, I'm going to give you that information. And we have about we have about 15 minutes left here on Victims to Victorious. If you click on the contact form, they have a, um, a little blank, and you can tell them how you want to become involved. I'm always advocating that my listeners write political officials, you know, use email. Um, if you, people still have, send uh, snail mail letters. Write to your officials. Tell them what you're not satisfied with. Tell them what you're expecting them to change, okay? Part of the culture of violence is just feeling helpful, helpless and going along with it and not advocating for yourself and asking for the eradication of violence. And what we do know is that there are many components to solving violence in these neighborhoods. Public health people want the rules to be enforced so that the transmission goes down. So right now, a good example, of course, is social distancing rules help you when someone coughs or sneezes so that you are not catching germs from them, if you will. The um, the spit is not getting into your eyes, okay? The um, mucus is not getting on your face. Let's go back a little bit and talk about uh, Cure Violence founder, Gary Slutkin. I mentioned him just briefly, but here are a few more details. He was the former head of the World Health Organization Intervention Development Unit. Cure Violence launched in West Garfield Park. Now, those of you who are listening, we had several uh, several descriptions of murders and shootings in West Garfield Park, one of the most violent communities in Chicago, and was quick to produce results, reducing shootings by 67% in the first year from 2000 to 2008. Cure Violence focuses activity in the United States, quickly expanding to Baltimore, New York, New Orleans, Oakland, Louisa, Puerto Rico, and other sites. In 2008, Cure Violence began its first international adaptation and replication of the methodology in Basra and Sadir City, Iraq. Since then, international programs have been added in Canada, Halifax and Alberta, Colombia, El Salvador, Honduras, Jamaica, Kenya, Mexico, South Africa, Syria, Trinidad and Tobago, the United Kingdom. Several cure violence program sites have been extremely um, have been externally evaluated, demonstrating strong results in multiple sites. In 2009, U.S. Attorney General Eric Holder, or U.S. Attorney General Eric Holder, if you remember him, he worked for Obama, referred to cure violence as a rational, data-driven, evidence-based, and smart approach to crime. The economist turned the cure violence method, termed the cure violence method, the approach that will come to um, providence. Providence. Gary Slutkin is the founder and CEO. So 
So now I want to take a look a little bit about the people I keep mentioning, the violence interrupters. What is a violence interrupter? How do they do it? So when, when they interrupt violence, they are trying to keep people in Chicago from getting shot by other people. So in that neighborhood that we mentioned, they're going to have to be able to identify who would be most likely to shoot someone else. So there have been examples of police doing it, but it's um, the police doing it has, has met with a lot of resistance because how can you tell if the police are interrupting violence or targeting you as an African-American person? So when Gary Flutkin starts out his program, he calls it ceasefire, and then it transitions into um, the cure of violence. So The Interrupters is actually a documentary uh, from 2011 that takes a look at how this works. So the documentary takes place on the south side. One of the main communities featured is Inglewood, and Inglewood lies approximately 12 miles south of the Loop and began as a home to German and Irish farm and railroad workers. So what does it show? It shows that there are... um, there are people who are willing to identify what the conflict is and negotiate the conflict down. And so that's very different from what the police do. When the police are looking for a um, one person, for instance, they target one person or a gang, and they're demonizing everyone versus interrupting the activity. Now, some of you are going to argue that being arrested interrupts the activity, But that doesn't have the same long-term effect. So um, when the movie The Interrupters was done, most of the drug activity can be traced back to two notorious gangs. I'm reading from the Wikipedia article that run the area, the Gangster Disciples and the Black P-Stones. So um, some of the real-life interrupters were Ricardo Kobe Williams, Eddie Bocanegra, Amina Matthews, Tia Hardiman, and actually the doctor and the founder of it, uh, Gary Slutkin, Slutkin himself. So you can look for that documentary on one of your streaming devices. It's produced by Carter Kim Films. That's spelled K-A-R-T-E-M-Q-U-I-N. And it tells the story of three violence interrupters who try to protect their Chicago communities from the violence that they, that they once employed. And that's also what I want to mention Many of the violence interrupters themselves are former gangbangers. The uh, founder of the group, Cure Violence, uh, Dr. Sletkin, works alongside with people because he believes that everyone who is trained in a certain way can participate in the interruption or the, the, the reducing of the risk in a pandemic. So when, when we say it's a pandemic and they have a wonderful Um, blurb on their site about the two things being the same. We know that the spread of something can be slowed down, and then we know that there can be cures. So cure violence stops the spread of violence by using the methods and strategies associated with disease control, detecting and interrupting the conflicts. So I'm trying to make make a comparison here. Getting, Getting the coronavirus test testing for the antigens, getting your temperature taken. Um, the Chinese use, um, they use uh, x-rays to look at your lungs to see if 
the little postulates, I'm calling them that, have stuck onto your lungs. So I want you to see the comparison, how it's exactly the same in the few minutes that we have left. So the cure violence approach says you should detect and interrupt conflicts. Then the next part, identify and treat the highest risk individuals. So during the pandemic, we have discovered that the highest risk individuals are people who are literally comorbid. They have high blood pressure. They have high blood sugar. They may have had a history of emphysema. And then age becomes a factor. This is very similar to what's going on with the the increased number of black men who kill themselves, who kill each other, I'm sorry, who are overrepresented in data. Some of them need to be identified. The uh, violence interrupters do that. And how do they treat the highest risk individuals? One thing that they do them is they give them conflict resolution skills. They also, the violence interrupters, also want to diffuse people when they are hot and heavy. So diffusing the violent thoughts, the, the, the impulse to react and to do the retaliatory shootings. So those are some of the risk factors. Simply being black and male and living in a large city is a risk factor. Your neighborhood is a risk factor. When more people invest in the neighborhood, the crime rate goes down. We have I've given you that information from other shows. When neighborhoods are spruced up, abandoned buildings torn down, the neighborhood is more friendly. More people come outside, for instance, and therefore there are more witnesses, and people are less likely to commit these crimes if 20 or 30 people are right there in the park. I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but the data shows that the secrecy of the abandoned building and the feeling that you have from your neighborhood that you don't care, that sentiment actually translates into violence. So finally, the third thing they want people to look at is changing norms, social norms. So not thinking that violence is okay, not thinking violence is the only solution solution to a uh, social conflict. Here are some of the more detailed things, detailed policies that are implemented by violence interrupters. They prevent retaliations. Whenever a shooting happens, trained workers immediately work in the community at the, and at the hospital to cool down and prevent retaliations. I'm reading from the article now. Um, I was giving my own expose before, but now I'm reading from the article. If you want to see the article, go to CVG, that's C like Charlie, V like Victor, G like George, dot O-R-G, slash what we do. So violence interrupters prevent retaliations whenever shooting a shooting happens. Trained workers immediately work in the community and at the hospital to cool down emotional emotions and prevent retaliations. Working with the victim's friends and family of the victim and anyone else who is connected with the event. They mediate, violence interrupters mediate ongoing conflicts. Workers identify ongoing conflicts by talking to key people in the community about an ongoing dispute, recent arrests, recent prison releases, and other situations, and use mediation techniques to resolve them peacefully. Here I want to make an analogy that they're mediating conflicts and finding out who's involved in the community and what the dispute is is very similar to what is, should have been done in the pandemic called contact tracing. In other words, once it was identified that people had this unusual disease, there should have been a group of people who got a name of a person. Who did you live with? Who did you um, go on a date with? Who did you work with? And make physical contact with those people and provide testing. This pandemic here in the United States, we were not able to do that. 
and even though that's basic basic epidemiology, here Dr. Slutkin is saying you can do the same thing for violence in African-American communities, especially gun violence. Finally, keep conflicts cool. Workers follow up with conflicts as far for as long as needed, sometimes for months, to ensure that the conflict does not become violent. So we also talk about who was at risk for corona. Who was at risk for, for getting the most sick? How was the virus, why is the virus more lethal in a certain group of people? You have to identify who those people are. In the same way that the violence interrupters are doing that, that's the same way that the medical doctors are determining who needs to go on the ventilator, who's most likely to have trouble breathing, and that's by identifying and treating the highest at risk. Trained culturally appropriate outreach workers work with the highest risk to make them less likely to commit violence by meeting them where they are at, talking to them about the cost of using violence and helping them to obtain the social services they need, such as a job training and a drug treatment. Okay, a mask or a bandana over your face is worth the cost of being hooked up to a ventilator. Access the highest risk. Workers utilize the trust with high-risk individuals to establish contact, develop relationships, begin to work with people most likely to be involved in violence. Changing behaviors. Workers engage with high-risk individuals to convince them to reject the use of violence by discussing the cost and consequences of violence and teaching alternative responses to situations. And that's what I call conflict resolution and um, using interpersonal skills when you have a conflict rather than using a 9-millimeter. So again, who is the most at risk for corona? That's the question. Who's at the most risk for gun violence? And Cure Violence is working with both of them. They were here before the pandemic, and they're working within the confines of it, again, applying the same models. Finally, providing treatment. That's all we're going to have time for. Workers develop a caseload of clients who they work with intensively, seeing several times a week and assisting with their needs, such as a drug treatment such as drug treatment, employment, and leaving the gangs. And I want to leave you with this. I want you to think of the providing treatment as the violence interrupters being nurses in the ICU. That is going to have to sit there. I don't know if you have had a relative in the ICU. The nurses sit there, and they have to monitor the people because the people are literally hanging in between life and death. So if you're an African-American male, and you are living in Chicago, this program is available to you. If you are listening to my show in Chicago, we are going to broadcast uh, when the pandemic is over live in Chicago in the summer and talk to violence interrupters and talk to stakeholders about reducing the gun violence in this community by using Dr. Slutkin's approach, and that is to cure violence as if it is a pandemic, and in fact it is. My name is Angel Fall. You're listening to Victims to Victorious. Each and every week we broadcast on the Black Talk Radio Network. The title of today's show is Chicago is Comorbid for Gun Violence and the Pandemic. You can hit me up on Twitter, On Air Angel. That's On Air Angel. Thanks, my Scotty. Thanks, Scotty, my uh, sound engineer. And I want to thank you, the listeners, for supporting me here on Victims to Victorious. 